Well, thank you very much indeed, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I thought it would be helpful maybe if I started the talk by putting my job in context. So the job of the Chief Scientific Advisor to the Government is to advise the Government on all aspects of science, engineering, technology, and social science for the whole of Government policy. <laughs> so you've spotted the problem, <laughs> or the challenge, I should say. Um, and so, in order to think rationally about the job, you have to worry about what it is that government cares about. And ultimately, I think good government is about caring about the health, well-being, the resilience, and the security of the population. And it's about the economy. And of course, those two are interrelated. And what is it that we take for granted largely, but depend upon for our health, well-being, resilience, and security? And it's our infrastructure. And in an advanced society, we're critically dependent on power. If the lights go out in a major city, if you lose your power supply, then the city grinds to halt extremely rapidly. And in an era where we have an increased dependence on power and also on advanced technology, so on IT, as we become more efficient, there's a danger that we become slightly less resilient. Uh, so when I was young, a supermarket would have a big warehouse behind it. Uh, but that's no longer the case, and warehouses, and sorry, and supermarkets now have just-in-time supply lines, and a, a lot of um, uh, our suppliers are just-in-time supply lines, and they get deliveries three or four times a day. But that means, of course, if you then lose your power source, be it fuel, be it electricity, your IT systems go down, then shops very rapidly empty. So... A big part of my job is worrying about infrastructure and about the resilience. And I've been talking about our built, engineered IT infrastructure, but of course the other infrastructure on which we depend and which we take for granted is our natural infrastructure, by which I mean human health, plant health, animal health, and of course the natural environment as a whole, weather, climate, physical events, volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis. And for our health, well-being, and resilience and security, so we depend on both the built environment and the natural environment. And of course, if you think about the intersection between those two, then it comes around climate and energy, because of course what we're doing in terms of burning our fossil ancestors, if I can put it that way, and I'll elaborate on that in a minute, then that's one of the big challenges for planetary systems and for the climate. Now, the talk is really in three parts. An introductory section, then I'm going to go very rapidly through the science. It was pointed out at the beginning, and I knew it, that I have 39 slides, and I already used about three minutes and not talked about any of them yet. So I'm going to go through the science quite rapidly. Um, but I think there are three challenges related to climate change. Um, and of course, my job is to give the scientific advice to the policymakers. I'm not a policymaker myself. The people that make policy are the people that we elect, having the privilege of living in a parliamentary democracy. And it's those people that make the policy decisions, ultimately. My job is to provide them the scientific advice. And as I'll show you in a minute, that's one of the lenses through which policymakers need to look at many issues. 
So the three challenges relating to climate change are, first of all, the scientific challenge and actually understanding this extraordinarily chaotic system uh, that leads to our weather and ultimately our climate is a huge scientific challenge. Um, and we are making substantial progress. Last week, I visited near here at the European Centre for Mid-Range Weather Forecasting. And this was the beginning of last week. And they told me that it was going to rain today. <laughs> and they turned out to be right. But, 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 but just to give you an idea, in terms of the sort of medium-range weather forecasting, by which we're talking about a small number of weeks, they improve in their ability to forecast accurately by about a day every 10 years. This is a very, very difficult scientific challenge. So that's the science. The second challenge relating to climate change is communications. So communicating it clearly, and you can just about see a graph in the middle, which is the way no scientist should communicate to anyone, another scientist, or indeed uh, to a more general audience. And then the third challenge, which I think in many ways is the hardest of all of the challenges, is the policy response to the science in the context of everything else that's going on. So I think that's a sort of useful way to think about the topic. And one of the big challenges for all of us is this important distinction between weather, which of course, particularly in a country like the UK, uh, an island with a Gulf Stream, um, is very variable, and climate. And essentially, climate is weather averaged over long periods. And so you can't see a change in the climate on a daily basis or a monthly basis. It's something that you observe on a very long-term basis. And one of the big scientific challenges is, as it were, distinguishing the signal of climate change from the noise of weather variability. Um, but people do tend to always um, uh, correlate immediate events with longer-term changes. And so you have a cold winter and everyone says, oh, it's complete nonsense. You have to be able to look over a very long time period to understand changes in climate. And of course, there are a number of natural influences on our climate, and they operate on very different timescales. And we're obviously used to the fact that the seasons change. Um, the season appears to have changed extremely acutely today. Um, but importantly, we have spring, summer, autumn, and winter. And so there are annual cycles. But there are also multi-annual cycles. So these are particularly changes in ocean currents. So for example, El Nino in the southern oceans. Um, and these recur every few years. And there, there are cycles that occur um, on longer, multi-decadal, so tens, twenties, thirty-year cycles, such as uh, an oscillation in the Pacific currents, the Pacific decadal oscillation. And then, of course, there are the multi-century cycles. Um, and solar cycles vary. Um, and our orbital parameters vary over prolonged periods of time uh, to things called Milankovitch cycles, which go over, for example, hundreds of thousands of years. And so there are all of these influences operating over different timescales. Now, we actually depend on the greenhouse effect for life on Earth as we know it. Um, and so we wouldn't be here sitting in this comfortable room um, without the greenhouse effect and the effect of our atmosphere. Um, and the principle of the greenhouse effect is that solar energy comes in um, at shortwave through the atmosphere, it warms the Earth, and that is then reflected, some of it, in the form of infrared radiation. And most of that escapes, but some of it is retained by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. 
Um, and we have always, there have always been an enormous number, amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. But what, of course, is changing is the equilibrium. So in other words, humans are putting large amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and that is changing the equilibrium over time. Um, now, that's a very simple picture, but there are all sorts of additional factors that uh, altered climatic change. So aerosols, so a big volcanic eruption can put large amounts of um, uh, particles into the atmosphere. Um, and these can have an effect and will have an effect on uh, the weather and the climate for a few years afterwards. Um, there are the effects of clouds, ozone, all the greenhouse gases. This is a very complicated picture. And of course, there are the natural fluctuations in solar output. Um, and of course, we should never forget the history of our atmosphere. Um, and carbon dioxide was converted to oxygen by photosynthesis, which began about two and a half billion years ago when cyanobacteria evolved the capability. And then we went through an extraordinary phase with uh, amazing carboniferous forests about 300 million years ago. And over time, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere fell and the oxygen rose, giving us the atmosphere in which we and other species have evolved more recently. Um, and we essentially inherited our energy because those organisms, as they died um, and fossilized in different ways, became the sources of coal, of oil, and of natural gas. And of course, what we're doing now is we're turning those deposits, our ancestors, we're essentially burning them to provide the energy sources, the power sources for today. And in doing so, we're releasing back the carbon dioxide that was fixed by those organisms over billions of years. And of course, our ability to harness energy and the extraordinary feature of humans is that we've been able to expand our populations because we've been able to adapt our environment it's that that's enabled us to colonize the world, to live in many different environments, and as it were, protect ourselves from uh, changes in temperature by you know, nice warm rooms like this, um, has enabled our population to grow exponentially. Um, and so you see the world population now, which is in excess of 7 billion people. Um, and that population expansion has happened over a tiny period in the history of the universe um, and life on Earth. And of course, what's happened with that is that our atmosphere is catching up. And this is now looking at carbon dioxide concentrations um, over very prolonged periods, over uh, as much as 800,000 years. And a lot of this is evidence derived from analysis of ice cores. Um, but you can see that from a, a, a regular peak of about 280 parts per million, uh, the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is now about 400 parts per million. Um, and depending on different emission scenario is still very much on the way up. And I'll come back to the different sources of those carbon emissions shortly. Now, the evidence for the warming of the climate is unequivocal. Um, and people sometimes say to me, well, how on earth uh, are you competent, as it were, to talk on weather and climate when you went to medical school. And it is perfectly true there was not a lot of meteorology um, in medical school courses then or now. Um, but one thing that medicine did contribute to the world of science, um, apart from the fact that if you're a doctor, you actually have to deal with uncertainty. So if you're looking after a patient, you have to take into account the best evidence there is, but recognize that the evidence is incomplete, and you always have to make the best decision you can in the face of uncertainty. 
Um, but one thing medicine did contribute was the meta-analysis. In other words, you can very rarely learn about the effects of a single drug on a single disease from one clinical study alone. Uh, you have to do lots of studies. And what you then do is you do what's called a meta-analysis. So you look at all of the evidence cumulatively and make the best judgment on all of that evidence. And because this is such an important area, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was set up and that does the most extraordinary meta-analysis probably ever conducted, which leads to the IPCC reports, which of course um, have just gone through a cycle of reporting, and the summary report will come out very soon from each of the individual reports. Um, and so climate science has been subjected to a very extraordinary degree of meta-analysis by literally hundreds of scientists from around the world. Um, and they have concluded that the evidence is that the warming of the climate is unequivocal. And so, as I say, I haven't got the time to go through all of these slides in detail, but this shows is um, the annual average temperatures going back to 1850, um, and uh, then averaged over 10-year periods. This point about weather fluctuating very rapidly, you start averaging it over longer periods, and the signal becomes a bit clearer as the noise disappears. Um, but the planet has warmed on average by about 0.8 degrees centigrade or 0.85 since about 1900. And the point is that the changes are consistent over the climate system. So all of the predictions that you would make about warming um, hold up. So, for example, you see um, a raised temperature in different environments, in the air, in the water. You see reduction in snow cover. You see glacial volumes going down. Everything that you would predict from the sort of elementary physics if the Earth is warming turns up in the measurements. Um, and there's sometimes debate, uh, because there is fluctuation, has there been a hiatus, has global warming stopped? Um, and the reality is that there's no evidence to suggest that at all. Um, and I'll show you in the next figure, in, actually I'll show you that now, in particular, um, one of the big challenges is that most of the heat is actually taken up in the oceans and the sea. And so these are the different sources of um, heat uptake. And we're looking here going back to uh, 1970. And what you can see is this extraordinary amount of the heat uptake is actually in the upper ocean and the deep ocean. Um, and the heat in the atmosphere is just this tiny part at the bottom. So we have this enormous heat sink there, and all of the evidence is that the heat content of the planet is going up very steadily. There is no hiatus in global warming. Um, but the important point is um, that the warming is not uniform across the globe. So I say 0.85 degrees average, but in fact there's very wide fluctuations. And I think one of the problems here is terminology, that people talk about uh, global warming or they talk about climate change, what we're actually seeing is climate disruption. Um, and so we're seeing an increase in very heavy precipitation events, we're seeing droughts, uh, we're seeing on average uh, more hot days and nights and fewer cold days at nights, um, we're seeing changes in tropical cyclones. And what we're seeing is climate disruption. And climate disruption, of course, then affects all of the sectors which are important not only to human life but to the life of other species on the planets as well. So we're seeing challenges of water. And, of course, you can't really look at humans' effects on climate in isolation. We're having many effects on our environment in terms of uh, resources, uh, our animal resources, our plant resources. So water, um, migration, not only of humans but of other species, is affected. Uh, human, animal, and plant health. There are all the political issues that go with 
um, changes in um, weather patterns, the challenges of energy, of food, and of course all of that um, ends up with economic effects. Um, and mapping the future, then there will be some parts of the world where there's increase in water, in other parts where there'll be decrease, um, there'll be channels of irrigation. Uh, in some parts of the world, crop yields will rise, particularly in northern parts. Um, but in sub-Saharan Africa, in many parts of the world, we're going to see challenges to crop yields. Um, I've talked about drought. Um, I've talked about flood a little bit. Um, coastal flooding, sea level rise, that's becoming an important issue. Um, so I've gone through the science pretty quickly. Um, the challenge for policymakers is what to do about this. And John Holdren, who is my counterpart in the United States, I think has put it very clearly. And he basically says we have three choices. We can mitigate climate change. In other words, we can try and reduce um, the amount of carbon emissions that we put into the atmosphere, change the ways we generate power. Uh, we can adapt, and so the Thames flood barrier is a good example of an adaptation. Um, or, the re or we can suffer. Um, and the reality, of course, is we're going to have to do all three of those. Um, but I think most people can see that what we have to do is try and optimize the ratio between these. Um, and, of course, the challenge there is that carbon dioxide emissions from human activities do continue to rise. Um, and this is looking at um, the different sources of um, carbon dioxide emissions. And we're putting out, in carbon equivalents, more than 10 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere each year. And one of the big problems, I think, in communicating science of climate change is a problem of big numbers and small numbers. So what I mean by that is that the small number is 0.85 degrees centigrade since 1900. That sounds very little. Uh, the difference in temperature between inside this room and outside this room um, is uh, you know, probably well over, well, about 10 degrees centigrade, I would guess. Um, so 0.85 doesn't seem like much. But of course, that's not an even temperature. And it's associated with changes of all of the compartments. Um, of uh, the Earth systems, so oceans, seas, ground, air. And the large number problem is 10 gigatons. Um, what does 10 gigatons of carbon actually mean? Um, uh, that doesn't sound like it. Very difficult to conceive that. So 10 billion tons, that's 10 gigatons, 10,000 million tons. Finding ways to express the numbers I think is um, uh, quite important. Um, and then this is just a visualization, which is um, a, a group called Carbon Visuals, an American group, uh, tries to produce visuals that bring to life what these enormous numbers actually mean. Um, and so um, one of the balls in the top right, sorry, top left of this um, uh, slide is um, what a, a, a ton of, a metric ton sphere of carbon dioxide looks like. And you can tell it's New York City because it's got skyscrapers and yellow cabs. Um, if you then put that into a daily emission, then the daily emissions of carbon dioxide in New York look like that pile of those spheres on the right where you can just see the tip of the Empire State Building sticking out of that cone of carbon dioxide. That is the daily emissions of New York. And then just multiply that up and you can see that the amount of carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere is truly gigantic. 
And whilst, of course, the globe is very large indeed, the oceans are very deep, nevertheless, this is actually changing the equilibrium in terms of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, and once it's there, it's there for a long time. So once carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, then it has a rather complicated um, series of half-lives, but a substantial fraction of it is in the atmosphere for hundreds or indeed thousands of years after we put it up there. So every gigaton of carbon dioxide we put up now is leaving a very long legacy for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And this is a graph looking at um, the total human carbon dioxide emissions going back to about 1850 when it started becoming a very significant on a global scale. And then the abscissa, the, the, sorry, the ordinate, the, the y-axis, um, looks at the temperature change relative to the period between 1861 and 1880. Um, and what you can see is that this takes us to the present, roughly. And the IPCC has then looked at a series of different scenarios um, and the business as usual scenario, which is that if we simply carry on as we are now, um, that will take us up here. Now, it's always much easier to predict the past than it is in the future. Um, and so, there are, there's, as you can see, the uncertainty, as it were, and this is from models, increases over time, as you would expect, because predicting 100 years is more uncertain than predicting 50 years. But the direction of travel is absolutely clear. If we carry on emitting carbon dioxide at the same rate, then the planetary weather systems, the climate, will change. Um, and there's a certain amount of sort of dancing on the point of a pin, which is whether we get there in, um, uh, to this point, let's say, in um, 2100, or it takes another 50 years, in the grand schemes of things, is neither here nor there. Um, and most of the sceptics about climate change aren't actually sceptical about the fact that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. They're not sceptical about the fact that um, we are emitting a lot of it. Uh, they tend to get into rather fine-grained arguments about when this point will happen and the accuracy to which, which one can predict this line. Um, but as I'll come back to at the end, um, we're talking about very short timescales if we carry on the same in relation to human history. Now, the other big challenge for policymakers is um, that whilst I think everyone acknowledges this, we're all in this together, ultimately we all breathe the same air, we do all ultimately consume the same water. Um, different countries are contributing in different ways. Um, and this is a rather unfamiliar map of the world, but this is a map of the world in terms of um, uh, carbon emissions. Um, and the size of the country is according to the fraction of the carbon emissions contributed to the atmosphere each year. And you can see that on this map, uh, the UK contributes something around 2% of carbon emissions. Um, and then the, the, the depth of the color is, all, is according to the amount of carbon per head emitted. And so you can see that, uh, for example, although India is quite large on this map, in terms of its contribution of carbon dioxide per capita, it's much lower than North America or indeed Australia, which although it appears rather small, that's because Australia has a tiny population in relation to its land surface area. That's one way of looking at it, but I've already told you that in fact once carbon is up there, it's up there for a long time. And since we actually invented the Industrial Revolution, it means that actually the UK contribution 
the total carbon emissions since the start of the Industrial Revolution is probably about 6%. So the world looks very different if you look at it going back to uh, historical emissions. And in case there are any doubt, um, and there's a rather nice app called Grid Carbon, so this figure was uh, taken down today at 11.40. Um, this is actually looking at the sources of today's electricity generation. Um, and so um, our power systems as a whole have put out 40.4 gigawatts um, during the last 24 hours. And you can see, and this varies on a day-to-day -day basis actually, but the major contributor today was uh, gas, which contributed 13.2 gigawatts, followed by coal, uh, nuclear about 15%, wind actually, and this, this is a good windy day, so it was 13.7% today. And any of you can download this app, Grid Carbon, it's rather addictive, and you can see what the different energy sources are. And it's quite interesting, I've been showing this figure for a little while now, and um, it varies every time I show it. Um, but we're still putting out basically, for every, kilo, every kilowatt hour of electricity we produce, half a kilogram of carbon dioxide. Um, and in terms of how we use it, uh, about a third just over is transport, about a third is domestic, and about a third is the rest, so industrial services, agriculture, and other systems. Um, and when you ask how we use it for transport, um, you can see that 45% uh, is cars, about a quarter is aeroplanes. Rail is a very um, effective way, efficient way to travel, um, because of course you get a large number of people into a train. Um, shipping, again, is a good way of moving things around. Um, but you can see that the road actually is responsible, if you take goods, vehicles, and cars, for over 70% of our uh, transport use. And the UK government actually is doing a lot in global terms. Um, so we have the Climate Change Act, which was passed in 2008 and requires emission cuts of at least 80% by 2050 relative to 1990 levels. We have binding carbon budgets. Um, there are, is an accountable framework and a committee on climate change. Um, and in fact, Julia King, who was here, if, uh, um, is a member of that committee. Um, and um, ag again, a committee that uh, Lord John Krebs um, chairs looks at the resilience of the um, uh, UK in terms of the impacts of climate change. Now, I'll finish briefly by discussing the policy challenge. And that is that if you're a policymaker, you actually have to view energy through three different lenses. So, as I've already indicated, the thing that's most important for our power supply is that it stays on. And so energy security, security of supply, is the first of the lenses. Uh, the second lens is the lens I've been talking about, which is the scientific, the long-term sustainability lens. So if we carry on as we are, what does that mean for our planet? And the third lens is the affordability lens. And so if you're a policymaker, unless you look at energy policy through all of those three lenses, you're unlikely to come up with a sensible set of policies. And the challenge for our policymakers is how they balance those three lenses, security of supply, sustainability, and affordability. And in work done by Nick Pigeon and his colleagues in Cardiff, and there's a lot of social science in this, then you can see actually that um, we, the public, identify those three lenses because, and in fact, it's a nice picture of an insect lens. Fortunately, there aren't quite that many lenses for a policymaker to look through. Um, but in this study, more than three-quarters of the respondents were 
very or fairly concerned about climate change and believe the UK should reduce its fossil use of fossil fuels. Um, again, similar percentage, slightly more, 83% were concerned that in the next 10 to 20 years, electricity and gas would become unaffordable. Um, and a similar percentage concerned about the UK becoming too dependent on energy from other countries. So if you ask all of us, we come out with those three policy-making lenses. And I think one of the challenges here is that, and anyone who works on this, needs to appreciate that science is meeting values all the time. And when you look at public values, um, they are entirely appropriate values in the context of the sort of discussion we're having, which is that there is concern about the use of finite resources. People recognize the importance of reducing energy use. And you can capture all of this, avoiding waste, efficient, capturing opportunities. Fairness, very important, social justice, environmental protection, concepts of naturalness and nature, very appropriate in Windsor Park. Um, taking a long-term view, uh, the availability and affordability, reliability, safety, autonomy and freedom, choice and control. And these are the value systems in which policymakers have to work. Um, and science is always meeting values. But I think one of the big challenges is that if you look, levels of concern about climate change have dropped. So in 2005, asked the public, 82% concerned. Um, in 2013, 60% concerned. Now, you know, if you're getting elected to Parliament, 60% is a good majority, as it were. Um, but nevertheless, there is a trend. And what's the explanation for this change? I don't think that there's any single factor. Um, I suspect that there is an element of boredom. So there are some people who think the scientific community has been banging on about this, but our world still feels very similar. Um, there's been economic pressures. So when times are hard, fuel costs are high, then people worry about the affordability angle. And finally, there are still siren voices who say it's all nonsense, um, although the evidence is absolutely robust as to what's going on. Um, and so when you look at UK public beliefs about climate change, some people do think the science is contested. Uh, people are concerned, but some think it's just part of natural fluctuation. Uh, there's a view that it's a distant problem affecting other people and times. Uh, it reminds me of the quote about Czechoslovakia before the last war. Um, they recognize the effects, that in fact it is warming, melting glaciers, but they don't connect them with human causes. Um, our electricity, of course, is something that's invisible to us. It comes out of plugs in the wall, and people don't really realize how it gets there. Um, and people confuse climate change with other environmental issues. Um, and, of course, the opportunity here is that a lot of the things that we can change will actually be good for our health as well as our environment and will actually save money. Um, so getting on a bike is actually good for us as long as we have an environment where, which is friendly to bicycles. And it's also important that we look at it in terms of not only the supply but also the demand. Um, and turning the thermostat down, we all run our thermostats much higher than we did um, in the 1950s and 1960s. We wear woolly pullers less than we used to. Um, and so there are important things on the demand side. And of course, uh, technology is going to be very important in terms of the supply side. So harnessing solar energy in parts of the world where there's lots of solar energy to harness, harnessing wind, uh, capturing the carbon dioxide, so carbon capture and storage. These are all opportunities. Um, and I would commend to you a tool which my colleague David Mackay, who until recently was the chief scientist in the Department of Energy Climate Change, developed, called the 2050 Calculator. 
Um, and that offers a way of modeling for anyone, public policymaker, um, what you need to do to achieve an 80% reduction in uh, carbon production by 2050. Um, and of course, as I've already said, um, it's not only about mitigating, it's about adapting as well. But I think the real challenge is that whilst you can't predict the precise time at which it will become extraordinarily difficult, and it'll happen in a very gradual way, I think economists sometimes look at discount rates. Um, but I think the issue that's perhaps closer is what are we prepared to pay now for our grandchildren? And indeed, what are we prepared to pay for our grandchildren's grandchildren? And whilst I think most people put an enormous value on those relatives they can see, so their grandchildren, and I think they can just about recognize their grandchildren will have children, so they'll have concern about them. I think the challenge is what price a grandchild's grandchild. And I think that this is perhaps less about working out a precise economic value of our grandchildren, but about our values of this generation. Thank you for your attention.